0: Welcome to the History Hotline. I am your host Deanna Lynn Cook and I have a special guest today, the first guest on the History Hotline and I think as listeners you should definitely be honoured to be blessed with the sounds of such a wonderful young woman speaking to you today. Our episode will be about immigration, uh, the history of immigration, uh, how it impacts you know, people within British society today. And um, also some really kind of cool things that are happening this Christmas uh, in regards to some charities um, that are working, you know, to help people that are dealing with immigration and refugees um, and people like that. But I'm not going to say too much because we're going to let our guests do that. But first, let me introduce her. So she has a first class degree in linguistics from Queen Mary. She also has um, a mass an MPhil, sorry, in education, globalization, and international development from the University of Cambridge. She is one of the most selfless people I know. She's unapologetically fabulous. She has worked with so many charities and is probably the reason um, that I was involved with quite a few charities during my time at university with her. Um, she's fundraised, raised awareness for, and you know got others on board to work with charities such as Copperfield, A21, Bloody Good Period, Restless Development and Judas Cloud. Um, She also is a very well-travelled and a very cool lady. She spent time uh, working for the Red Cross uh, in Norway, volunteering there, um, and now volunteers for Mosaic Education, which is what she'll be speaking about a little bit later. Um, And that is a charity that works with organisations in Jordan and Lebanon to help refugees access higher education. So, live in the studio today socially distanced well we're not even in the same room it's virtual um is our (laughs) special guest hannah gaffey thank you so much for joining me hannah
1: thank you thank you for having me we were just talking about earlier how great it is that you have this podcast and that you even did it whilst doing a master's because I think some days I couldn't even get out of bed when I was doing my master's so I don't know how you did it all and you're still doing it all but it's
0: great it's insane I feel like pandemic came with blessings um And a lot of time. I think I realised how much time I spend just being outside, doing very little. Mm. When you're kind of forced to be inside, you realise that 24 hours is actually quite a while. Um, So yeah, I feel like I've been, you know, trying to use the time wisely. And I'm just very happy to have you here today. Well, thank you. Let's get into this episode. I'm firstly going to just, you know, talk about history because, you know, history hotline. Why not? (laughs) Um, And I think we're going to firstly talk about kind of history of immigration in this country. Um, and what that has meant for people, and just a kind of precursor to just look at, I would say, kind of how the government uses immigration in order Mm -hmm. to decide what kinds of people they want in the country at what certain points, and what kind of people they don't want in the country, because immigration acts have allowed people to come to this country, but they've also allowed um, and restricted who can come in and who needs to leave at any given point. Um, Before I do that, though, I think you want to talk about yourself and the work you kind of do why you do it and you know whether you like it or not and yeah that kind of thing
1: thanks um so I recently finished my master's as Deanna said in education globalization and in social development which is a lot of words but I like specialized and did my dissertation about Um, young people seeking asylum in the UK and their access to education and I feel like that really came about actually when I was in Norway I was volunteering for the Red Cross Um, and met lots of young people seeking asylum who they were explaining sort of their quality of life to me and they said you know we can't do anything or go anywhere because so first of all for people listening who might not know what an asylum seeker is and what the difference is between an asylum seeker and a refugee. Um, an asylum seeker is somebody who has entered into the process of like having their refugee status determined Um, so they're you know fleeing war conflicts persecution and they've arrived in a country and they said I'm seeking asylum and then they'll go through an asylum process and ideally in the UK you should get a decision within six months but as we know it often takes longer So sorry for that ramble, but I just thought it's important for people to know what an asylum seeker is because when I was growing up, there was a lot of talk of, you know, bogus asylum seekers, illegal immigrants. um, And yeah, the idea of asylum is sometimes conflated with being illegal or being unworthy of humanitarian protection. So Mm. um, I met these young people in Norway and they were saying, we don't have access to education. We don't have access to the marketplace, like the job market. Um, We basically sit inside all day and do nothing because we have no autonomy over our lives because we haven't been given refugee status, which means that, you know, you can't just go out and be an everyday human. Um, So I found that obviously horrific, um, but I think what particularly struck me is as a young person myself at the time, and I still am now, um, I have, you know, so much autonomy over my life and I can choose to do whatever I want essentially especially during that time I was making the decision to go and study a master's and I was like you know these young people don't have the opportunity to do that um so then I was like right I'm going to go to Cambridge I'm going to study education and I'm going to you know solve all these problems (laughs) um which obviously very big-headed of me and is absolutely not what I'm doing um but yeah it just I think it just struck a chord with me cuz I was like why you know why can't people have access to education like of all things why can't have people have access to education so yeah, <laughs> no, no, I
0: think that definitely makes sense. Um, And it's interesting to know the place that you know, your research was born out of. I think everyone has that moment, especially doing a master's where you're so focused on, you know, your project, and you have to be really passionate about it to write about it for so long in such kind of isolation, especially during a pandemic. Um, So yeah, it's good to know where that kind of drive for that research specifically came from. And this the fact that you know, you had experiences with people that were kind of stuck in this Um, situation where they can't do anything as you said they don't have autonomy over their kind of daily lives while they wait for these decisions Mm -hmm. to be made about their lives Um, or because they are literally fleeing you know in some cases death or violence or torture Um, it's not it's not an ideal situation in any way and I really do like the work that Mosaic do um, you know in regards to kind of to working with um, people to to change their situations Um, what kind of made you turn to mosaic or start volunteering for them
1: so i started volunteering for mosaic in september 2019 i think and it was just after i'd returned back from norway and i was about to start my masters at cambridge and i actually came across their instagram profile because the printing company that i used for my teas for fees campaign were advertising like we want you you know we want artists and designers to come up with um artwork to put on these t-shirts to sell for this um charity called mosaic education Um, and they help refugees get to university and I was like this is like an absolutely great charity like how can I get involved and so I think I just sent them an email and said like I really want to get involved how can I get involved um and they came back to me saying oh actually we're already advertising for a social media volunteer um basically just putting an application for it and I was like great because I absolutely <laughs> love social media so I was like yeah. it just you know when it just feels like the perfect opportunity perfect, because yeah. you're like yep. I love like the cause and then also the actual sort of volunteer role is something that I really enjoy doing and like activities that I find quite energizing so then I was like sign me up please
0: Perfect. Makes complete sense, absolutely. One thing just to pull out, just in case any audience members aren't aware, what was your tease for Fees campaign all about? Just briefly, oh, because someone just- else for <laughs> <want> me. <laughs> it's,
1: it's the hardest thing to say just briefly, but just briefly, um, it was a campaign to raise money for my master's degree at the University of Cambridge because as I'm sure people are aware it's a very expensive education Um, and a lot of the times you have to self-fund that education like there aren't um, grants and scholarships available from the university. Um, I think it's something like 89% of Cambridge master's degrees are self-funded and that doesn't necessarily mean that you are yourself funding it it's that you could get a scholarship from like an external body but it's that the university of cambridge aren't going to fund it if that makes sense so yeah t for fees we sold t-shirts and tote bags with some of my lovely friends faces on it one of them being diana um (laughs) and yeah we raised money and that was kind of it
0: (laughs) absolutely perfect 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 Right, so, as I said, we're going to get into the, a little bit of history. Yes, I'm so excited. Um, oh,
1: this wow. is the best bit. It's literally the history hotline. Hit <laughs> me with it. Yeah.
0: So, the first time that um, immigration was kind of brought into law was in 1905 uh, with the Aliens Act. And that was specifically um, for the Jewish people that were coming from Eastern Europe. Um, and it was a lot of poor Jewish people and People, I guess, the government wanted to stem that because, as we've said, there's a certain type of person that at different times um, the British government want in Mm. their country. Um, And so that was kind of one of the biggest waves of immigration. They were fleeing um, religious persecution, um, mostly kind of in Russia and that side of Europe. Um, And so that was the first act that kind of placed a restriction on them. The restrictions were that um, they needed to have the the means to support themselves and any dependents when they arrived. They also had to have a medical inspection when they arrived. They couldn't be, and these are quotes taken from the law, not my own words, please. Um, They could not be a lunatic, an idiot, or diseased. Those are their words, not mine at all. Um, But you can obviously understand that they meant like mentally Mm. ill, um, idiot, I'm not sure. I was going to assume they also mean mental yeah. illness um, and disease would be having certain um, illnesses as well, physical or otherwise. And they couldn't also be sentenced in another country. Um, so they had to be not sentenced in another country. So coming freely, not like running from um, like prison, basically. Um, so, yeah, it was the first um, part, point of legislation and it was also the first legislation on refugees as well. Um, which and it gave individuals a right to asylum uh, in Britain if they were fleeing religious or political persecution, um, and so yeah, they they legislated against who could come in and the type of person that they wanted. Um, it's just the same story, like Britain and the British government. They're not they're not slick, you know. Mm-mm. They just follow the same patterns year on year out. You know, nineteen oh five, twenty twenty, now same thing, so still going. Same, same, thing, something different day. Different day. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> right so following that there was the act in 1914 which is just before world war 1 started it was literally rushed through um the eve of world war 1 um and it basically said that all quote unquote aliens had to register with the police um before they arrived when they arrived in britain um and i think that was just to do with kind of war restrictions and things like that but it also meant that people were on record on um you know an official record of being in the country um during the 1930s European refugees were fleeing the Nazis, um, especially in Germany. This began as, as early as 1930. World, World War II didn't start till 1939. People actually um, started coming in really large numbers in the 1930s, especially around 1933. Um, and so during this time, we also see, we see, sorry, mainly um, people fleeing the Nazis, essentially. Um, but we also see a lot of people being rejected, um, you know, Britain, Britain liked to to reject people Um, and this didn't kind of stop in the time of war, even though it was very clear who they were fleeing and the kind of things that they Mm. were fleeing and you know britain had skin in the game because they were essentially fighting this as well um and whilst it is understandable that they couldn't necessarily take in everybody fleeing war i don't know if it was because maybe um there might be german spies that would try and flee as refugees i don't know what the thinking was but um they they didn't and i think they took in a lot of children i think it was called the kinder transport mm. um where they took in a lot of children they had a set amount of of children that they took in and america did similar things as well um but yeah that was kind of during the war after the war there was a big massive growth of commonwealth immigrants which if you've listened to any episode on here before you will know 1945 um the war ends there's two ships before the windrush um the ormond and the almanzora and then in 1948 the windrush comes british national british nationality act of 48 means that if you're a citizen of the united kingdom and the colonies you're free to come to the country 1962 this is restricted. Um, I think it's conservative governments at the time. But by the way, these immigration laws are no in no means like limited to one government, the right or the left, um, Labour and the mm-hmm. Conservatives have both had their hand in immigration laws, in the hostile immigration pol- um, environment that we we'll, we'll see in the 21st century. Um, so it's not a, oh, we're going to blame this side or that side. It is very much, um, I'd say, an institutional problem. Yeah, absolutely. And a symptom of of British um, colonialism Mm. and anti-blackness, I would say. Um, And not just that, because as we've seen, you know, um, the Jewish um, people that came wouldn't have been black, um, still persecuted against um, and legislated against, should Mm. I say. So... 62, we've got the Commonwealth Immigration Act. Um, you can only come if you have government-issued employment vouchers, meaning that if you're, you're coming to work a specific job. So we see at that point um, the majority of workers coming are working in the NHS um, in education or in like manual services. 1968, that is amended. It's amended in the most disgusting way. It's specifically for Kenyan Asians who are fleeing persecution in Kenya um, and in order to stop them coming en masse to England they uh, passed this law, I think, like very, very quickly, run it through Parliament as quickly as possible with as little backlash as possible um, in order to restrict, to preempt the restrictions um of Kenyan Asians. Um, and then in 1971, all those acts are superseded by this big Immigration Act, which further limits people from the colonies and their children. um, And it kind of reshuffles and rejigs what it means to be a British citizen and be able to claim citizenship rights, which would mean moving to Britain um and so that's kind of the history i think as we fast forward it's probably things that people have heard in the news like you know after britain joined the european union we have open borders for european migrants so that has caused um i guess a lot of Mm. resentment within some british people we've now got brexit which stopping the free movement of people from 31st of december Mm -hmm. yeah Yep, um, so it's over for us all, not just people that want to come here, but if we want to go to Europe, we will have to, you know, go through the country that we are trying to move to, to work to, to live in, to holiday in. We'll have to deal with whatever laws that they have in place for us, um, as British citizens that is. Um, we've had the hostile environment, which started in 2012. It kind of came to to press and to, to be a big thing after the Windrush scandal in 2016 but if you read the report it went back as early as 2006 with people being deported back to the caribbean windrush scandal didn't just affect people from the caribbean people from west africa and in smaller numbers from australia and from certain countries in europe that were outside of the eu also impacted so as you can see we've just got like a wealth of laws and that is me like running through Mm. them at like usain bolt speed (laughs) um but you can just see the types of britain just constantly changing the parameters for who is allowed here who is who can claim citizenship and who has the right to be here. And I don't know so much. Maybe you have an opinion on this, Hannah. If it's the British people putting pressure on the government because they don't like what their society and their street looks like, or it's the British government deciding who they need to work and who they don't want to work here... And then kind of pushing that through the media to then you do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like get support from British people, and I feel like it's a cycle. Yeah. But, so
1: this is actually yeah. what I wrote my literature review about in my um, dissertation. Like this cycle that you speak about. So there's obviously three prongs, or whatever you want to call it, to it yeah. is the the press. Um, policy slash politicians and the public three p's as we can call them Mm. (laughs) um and i feel like you're right in the sense that they all push on each other and it does go in a circle and the circle can go in all of the different directions because obviously in my opinion the home office pander to the the portion of the electorate that is xenophobic and racist but what they maybe fail to see or they're doing on purpose, you know, who knows, is that you can never please that portion of the electorate. So, for example, if the Home Office does a tweet like, we deported three people today, hooray, because they do do those types of tweets for some reason. But obviously mm-hmm. they're framing they it as if, like, those people don't deserve to be here. So if they deport an asylum seeker, they'll say, we were deporting an illegal. Um, yeah. And then there's comments under the Twitter post, as there always is, you know, the replies, and there's people yep. saying, "Oh, you know, it's not enough of them. Send more back. Um, you know, that kind of thing." Yeah. So it's like you can never, ever, ever please that portion of the electorate. So why do you even try? Is my
0: absolutely uh, view
1: on things. Um, and then you also, yeah, again, it's like if they, because like Pretty Patel and the Home Office will tweet. We are doing X because we want to honor the will of the British people. So they're referring to, I think a lot of the time they're referring to Brexit because the will yeah. of the British people apparently was to protect Britain's borders with Brexit. So they're saying if we get rid of all these asylum seekers, we are, you know, um, protecting the will of the British people and enacting the will of the British people. Um, and yeah, it's it's just yeah, it's just a cycle. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. It it does seem to be the case, definitely, especially with things like Brexit. Um, and then it's interesting because a lot of people will say, well, you know, we didn't vote for Brexit just because of the borders. Um, you know, we, I don't know what their arguments are, what they wanted um, outside of immigration control. Um, but yet yeah, you will see the kind of government and as you said, the Home Office pander into that, that portion um, that want border controls um, and immigration reforms. And so it's kind of difficult to, I guess, separate you know, the two pull out a prong. Yeah. From yeah. The, the I think it's that
1: the problem with saying, well, first of all, let's actually just say that I'm sure not everyone who voted for Brexit is racist because there are some people Absolutely. who were like, this will be great for the fishing laws, which I obviously don't know yep. anything about, um, but they were like, <laughs> you know, we need to not adhere to the EU's fishing quota. And therefore I want to leave the EU um but i do think that the vote leave campaign was the entire campaign was sold on <laughs> get rid of migrants that was the entire campaign Absolutely. um yep. so that is why it's difficult to separate the two because the vote leave campaign was so strong with this anti-immigrant
0: anti-migrant rhetoric yeah, yeah definitely definitely and most people you know in the general population um would have said oh yeah you know we need british jobs for british people gotta get rid of these people that are just stealing our benefits taking our jobs taking our houses yep that that kind of commentary um it was very clear i think during brexit do you ever feel like
1: (laughs) do you want to say ghastly (laughs) but like people will say like that was the rhetoric for the entire brexit campaign right and that's what you were hearing and then now people are like well not everybody i I mean i've just said it what like not everybody was racist who voted for brexit but i'm like does nobody remember like what was
0: actually happening at the time absolutely absolutely i i don't see how i could possibly forget like nigel farage with all his nonsense the bus um, and then also it the was
1: like <laughs> the, <literal laughs> the
0: bus <laughs> <laughs> we'll spend
1: this on the, the nhs bus. and then it was like oh no we won't i mean this is not about migration but yeah and then it wouldn't he yeah. had that billboard and it had like a picture of people cro- like lining up to cross a border and he was like if we yep. vote for brexit we won't have this no one will cross our
0: borders kind of thing yeah, exactly. That's the thing. And it, and now it's kind of like people are asking for this separation. Oh, no, we, you know, we voted to leave because of X, Y and Z, not immigration. Um, it's definitely a very, very confusing. It's like, do people think that people don't have a memory? Do like these, these media outlets <laughs> think that? The, like, do you think we don't remember? Like, it wasn't that long ago. Right, so... Let's get into um, the hostile environment a little bit, which, um, as we mentioned before, started in 2012 with Theresa May as Home Secretary. Um, and I just want to ask you, Hannah, kind of, what do you think that means for, I guess, people? Yeah, I feel like you everything, catch the drift. Every, Yeah, <laughs> essentially, life, people.
1: So in my dissertation I interviewed three young people seeking asylum so I could tell you about what they feel like the hostile environment or how it impacts on their life because then it's actual evidence from people's lives. Shall we do that? Yeah
0: absolutely definitely.
1: So I think the biggest reflection like upon undertaking this research project for me was that Similar to what we were talking about earlier is that the com the sort of complete lack of autonomy that you have when you're being impacted by the hostile environment. Because like when people of the Windrush generation suddenly got a letter from the Home Office that said, You, you know, you don't deserve to be here anymore and it kind of puts this like suspended sentence over your head because from the point that you get that letter until the point where a decision is made of whether you're going to get deported or not your existence is temporary like the whole time you're not allowed to go to work you can't really participate in any kind of public life like if you watched if anyone listening has watched uh, is it called sitting in limbo yeah absolutely um on the bbc that characterised it really well in the sense that obviously the main character, he lost like everything like he had to sell his house because he couldn't afford because they used to have obviously two wages coming into the house and then they only had one and then he had to live with his kids and there's all of this stuff that goes on because your life is so temporary and you cannot see into the future at all like you just have to take it one day at a time because tomorrow you could get a letter or a call or whatever from the home office or (laughs) they'll just come into your house and take you out of your house and put you in a detention center and say, that's it, you're getting deported. Um, So, similarly, with people who are seeking asylum, from the minute that they enter the UK until they receive um, a decision on their application, which can be anything from six months to infinity and beyond, it seems, um, they... Yeah, it's this temporary existence, so... And I think it also, like, you're only characterised, like, your identity is only as an asylum seeker. Like, one of my participants, Malisha, said to me, I feel like being an asylum seeker is a large part of my identity, even though I don't want it to be. Obviously, financially, if you're living as an asylum seeker in the UK, on the Home Office website, it says you get £37.50 a week. I believe it's gone up to, like, £39 because of the pandemic, but it's not reflected on the website so I might need to tell you know whoever works in comms in the home office to sort that out um um, so yeah £37.50 to £39 a week to live off means that a lot of the time you need to choose between like eating or getting transport so an example of that I can give is Yaman another one of my participants he was saying that to get to his local language class so that he can improve his English and you know have better job prospects etc um It's in the nearest city, so it's a two hour walk there and back for him mm. to do that because if he pays for the bus fare then he can't eat that day. So yeah, that's one other thing, and particularly with COVID. Um, everyone was saying COVID is a great equalizer because it affects everyone, therefore we are all equal. And it's like, no, it actually if you're already suffering at the hands of the state, you're actually just impacted more. Yeah,
0: I, I wasn't I, I think I heard it before um we'd even learn of the health inequalities with, you know, uh, mm. Asian people dying more at those rates that wasn't even reported yet and I was thinking but wait if everybody's at home some people even on a small level of some people's homes aren't no exactly like that I was just it didn't make any sense and I was so kind of surprised that that would be the the rhetoric and the narrative that you would choose to push at the start of a pandemic that was completely unprecedented one thing we didn't do sorry no go um, on just to say what is hostile environment
1: that's um, important
0: because just in case you don't know so it basically if i'm right please correct me if i'm wrong because you are the specialist um it basically shifts the burden of proof to the person that was being accused of being illegally in this country to prove that they were here legally as opposed to um the home office finding a reason that you were here illegally and proving that you s- themselves um so in the show sitting in limbo which talks about um i can't remember no, the name I of his can't. name but he's um a windrush um he's of the windrush generation and he's been in this country i think it was like 50 it was years, 50, it was
1: honestly thinking. like yeah over 50 years that he's lived and worked yeah, in this like country he a child. and then they were like yeah no you don't have citizenship bye
0: absolutely so you get a letter saying you're an illegal immigrant you have x amount of days to prove that you're not essentially um he didn't have a passport by the way you don't need a passport to prove that you're a citizen of this Mm -hmm. country um the landing cards of this is getting into into the Windrush scandal but just to explain this case the landing cards um, of a large proportion of people that had arrived in britain from the caribbean were destroyed um they were stored physically and then Apparently, the Home Office needed to make room for something else and literally just destroyed them without digitalizing them or anything. Um, and so these people had to then prove it. And they had to literally find photographs mm. of themselves as like children. Like primary school, man, was, yeah. Yeah, like in school or, um, you know, with having children in this country um, at work. Like, who takes photos at work? Like, remember, we're not talking about 2020, where we all have a smartphone and we all take photos every day. Like, I could prove where I was probably every day for the past (laughs) two, three years. But back in the 1960s, like, that's not a thing. You know, you take a photo on a special occasion. Like, even to find photos of my grandparents of the same generation, it's not something that we could just, you know, grab. There are probably about 10 special occasion mm. photographs where they've gotten dressed up and gone to a studio to take a picture um, to send back home. Um, and funnily enough, my dissertation was, I used a lot of um, photographs and family archives um, in order to, to write my dissertation. And I made the link with the fact that these family archives that we hold and we keep, just you know to mem- to remember our grandparents or our parents, these were lifelines mm. for that generation. These pictures, literally, a photograph saved their life it proved that they were here when they said they were here and that is absolutely insane to me
1: the whole story shows how bureaucratic and just a stupid process that it is but also how like the goalposts are constantly moving so as you say you know you don't actually have to have a passport in this country to be british like you don't have to be in possession of a passport but then they were like Hmm, you don't have that, so okay that's like one bad mark you' you're not good yeah. enough to be here and then, in sitting in limbo again, when he kept going to these like interviews with the home office, he'd bring all of this um information which he's so painstakingly like gone through his entire oh, yeah. life, and like any certificate that he had of anything on any photo that he had, he even went and like contacted his old teachers to see if he could like they could give him a reference and say, "Yes, I definitely taught this person." um oh gosh, yeah. And then you take all that to the Home Office, and again they'd be like, "It's not good enough." So it's just these constantly yes. moving goalposts of what is and what isn't good yep. enough, and how, uh, yeah, how, how do you prove your own life story? That's crazy. Exactly.
0: Absolutely. um Just for context, this man's name is Anthony Bryan, um, and he his case was one of the first cases that got exposed of the Windrush scandal. Um, and it was interesting his. Um, I think it was his brother that actually wrote the show. um, Yes, it was. In the aftermath of it, um, about Anthony Bryan's life. Um, I guess with the Windrush scandal, it was not their fault. Mm. It was a mistake by the home office. And it obviously particularly targeted black people um which then creates um a racial element to to the issue um and i think it highlights systemic racism within that part of society if not the wider society
1: and also the woman at the home office who was like in charge of the compensation scheme um recently resigned because she says institutionally racist so there we go <laughs>
0: I have not actually had one episode where I haven't mentioned the term institutional racism, and I'm just happy that I've managed to get it in this episode, so thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Kudos to me. <laughs> I think right. one um, thing that
1: I want to mention to our audience, which I absolutely. haven't really talked about, I've just talked about people generally being barred from work, but I think it's important to actually talk about it more because when I was doing my dissertation, I came to the sort of conclusion that... We're always told or we hear in the press or from people in the streets, you know, um, people who come over here, they're scroungers, they don't, you know, they don't benefit our society at all. um, They're only coming here for benefits, whatever. But the UK government prevents these people from working. So how yeah. <laughs> are you supposed to prove that you want to be an integral part of society? Or you talked about this a few weeks ago, and it's a horrible thing to say, but to contribute to society, yeah. if you're actually not allowed to contribute to society, like you're not even given the option to go and get a job. So it just,
0: absolutely
1: yeah, it, it it's, it's a really simple thing, but it really blew my mind when I was doing my dissertation. I was like, yeah. the whole narrative no. is just a lie because actually people aren't allowed to work so I don't understand where this narrative of people not contributing has come from because they're actually not allowed to contribute sorry I just really wanted to say that
0: no that makes sense and I think it's even more pertinent and I think I hope people maybe understand this a little bit more but you know being in a pandemic and a lot of people not being able to go to work um because of uh you know the the, the places of work have closed and people being on furlough, I heard a lot of people say, you know like, I just want to go back to work like I just want to go and work mentally, what that does for you to sit in your house mm. every day and not be able to leave because a well in in the case of the pandemic, you know nothing is open." But in the case of you not even being able to afford to do anything or go anywhere. And then on top of that, the fear of people, you know, being overtly racist to you in the street. We haven't even we touched, haven't even on, touched on that. Um, refugees um, have to to deal with asylum seekers and just, I guess, black and brown people mm-hmm. in general. But especially with the language barrier um, and being new to the country or the city. Um, I hope that people maybe during this pandemic have, have understood what mentally that can do to you as a person and your willpower.
1: Exactly, and I think again, it's this this thing about temporality—that's a word—or temporary existence—is a lot of us. Well, I can only speak for myself, but prior to the pandemic, I'd never had like a circumstance where I couldn't plan my life in advance. But then, obviously, the pandemic came and it is still here and we cannot see into the future at all. But imagine that being your existence and you don't know when there's going to be an end date. You said about not being able to go to work is so important because it is demoralising to sit inside your house every day. If you come to the UK as a child, you're as an asylum seeker, yeah. you are allowed to go to school. Thank goodness. We're doing something right. Um, wow. So a lot of the kids will come home and say to their mum and dad, oh, everyone else is like, mummy and daddy is working. Why aren't you going to work? And imagine hearing that as a parent. And obviously, if the kid came to the UK when they were quite young, they might not have even seeing them parents working like in their home country. So yeah, it just I can't imagine how demoralising it is, especially for your kids like come home from school and be like, Why aren't you going out to work?
0: Yeah, definitely. Also just to know, I don't know if anybody is here thinking like, Oh yeah, but like, you know, Britain has its own problems. It can't deal with all these people coming in. Um, you know, Boris Johnson has just announced that he will be spending sixteen point five billion into the military. um, Sixteen point five billion. billion into the military um i didn't know that any wars were coming up i don't believe
1: have we scheduled one what's what swosker no,
0: on? no one mentioned it to me i've not heard about
1: so, you know what yeah
0: me either um 16.5 billion i'm just going to remind you that he also a few weeks ago said that school children will not be getting free school meals in the holidays yes he's now backtracked but that was his r- original stance but 16.5 billion um for the military so I'm just leaving that there just for people that anybody wondering you know if the sixth biggest economy in the world can afford to look after people fleeing persecution just if you were if you were unsure that's all thank you right so I have a few questions for you Hannah just in relation to your work um, and then obviously as we mentioned you are volunteering with Mosaic Education at the moment um, so like what would you like to see this is probably a massive question <laughs> what would you like to see Britain do in regards to, um, to refugees in this country. Um, that is re- refugees, not like immigration more broadly. Cause I think that's just a lot for today. I
1: mean, I feel like my answer is going to be kind of in regards to immigration more broadly, but I think okay. there's been like several reports recently about the home office and just say- basically the reports say the home office is not fit to function, which is kind of like <laughs> a big statement And obviously, I don't work for the Home Office, so I don't know, but I want to see some, like, is anything being done about the fact that it's not fit to function? Like, what's going on? Again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the person who was working on the Windrush um, conversation scheme resigned because she said it's racist. So clearly, there's a big problem with the Home Office. So I feel like I'd like to see some sort of overhaul, (laughs) which involves it not being a race to the bottom in terms of trying to expel people from the united kingdom but actually considers what is best for people and also one thing that's really important to point out is a lot of people who are seeking refuge do actually want to go back to their home country because you know what before the circumstances arose that made them seek refuge they had a nice life there
0: absolutely yep that literally makes complete sense um i think it is definitely important to to remember the fact that you know different people come for different reasons and because they come for different reasons they also might want to go back home for different reasons there are so many nuances and complexities to the story of immigration and historically and even today in in every case as you've mentioned and i think it's really good and i guess we're kind of similar in our research which we just did discuss like while we were doing our masters um we both use like people's Testimonies mm. and stories to to create our research and base it around people's individual stories, as opposed to these like statistics and figures of like like when you say like oh, I don't know like three thousand people came here in nineteen twenty nine like what does that mean for anybody like each one of those people had a story, had a family, had a had a profession and yeah I do like the fact that you you know you've been able to kind of understand and to to dig into people's narratives to to help you understand that and help others understand that definitely. Also, going also. back to Mosaic, <laughs> since it is nearly Christmas time, I think Christmas is, like, coming earlier this year because there's not really much else to think about. But, yeah, so with Mosaic um, and your kind of work with them, volunteering there, what have they What have they got an offer for us this Christmas that can help, help support a charity that is clearly uh, doing the work that needs to be done?
1: Well, Deanna... I'm sure sure that you've seen on social media that there's a big push for people to shop small and independently and basically from small businesses this year because people are struggling. As I've said, it's a pandemic and people are struggling financially, especially people who are owners of their own business or self-employed because sort of the rules about furlough and the kind of financial backing they get from the government is either different or it's just not there and obviously it's nice if people support charities because charities are also not getting as much um funds as much funds is that english as many funds um they're not getting as much financial backing from people individuals because obviously people need to be more tight on money so in the spirit of supporting both small businesses and a great in my opinion, a great cause. Um, Mosaic have uh, set up this Mosaic Christmas shop where you can buy Christmas presents from 17 small businesses. um, And at least 10% of the profit goes to Mosaic. So each business owner has decided how much of the profit they will donate, obviously based on their own financial circumstances. Um, Uh, But yeah, at least 10% from every single item in the shop goes to Mosaic um and I just think it's really good and I'm really excited about it
0: sounds good I've had a look at some of the things on offer um I would say my favorites are definitely the tea um and the candle um and there's also the candle looks yeah it just looks like it's gonna smell like so warm is there anything you'd recommend on the shop that you've got your eye on or
1: um, I've bought those Turkish socks okay. which are basically like knitted socks yeah. and every single pair is different which is oh, what wow. I quite like yeah. about them so they'll all be like different colours different designs kind of I thing um also got my on, on the candle yeah. and the tea there's candlestick holders and the person who made them made them especially for mosaic oh, so beautiful. there's a um a collection of 15 yeah. so once the 15 are gone they are literally gone oh, wow. so I would say people should go for those definitely. if
0: that's what they want yeah definitely I think it's a great initiative especially as you said you know there is definitely a need I think this year more than any to to support local business it's also better for the environment for the most part than doing all your shopping on mr bezos's site um (laughs) and you know (laughs) that guy jeff yeah man like jeff um and also at the end of the day it's november the 20th now if you get your act together you know you won't have to rely on next day delivery um Mm -hmm. don't don't do your christmas shopping the night before or the week before
1: you know do it with
0: time you could probably get better things um because you won't be rushed for what can get delivered in time um, and with that, you know, support a charity and support small businesses because they desperately need it this year. Yeah.
1: And on the sustainability angle, everything is like handmade and handmade in the Absolutely. UK, so Perfect. it's not being shipped from anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a lot of people are doing like kind of zero waste production. Definitely, which is that's, great.
0: Well, literally, it's exactly what we need um, in 2020. I think that is everything that we intended to cover today. Um, I just want to say a humongously large thank you to Hannah Gaffey for for being the first guest on the History Hotline for joining me, for explaining her research, um and you know I feel like whenever I speak to Hannah, I feel like I have put the world to right. Um, I feel like I come out of conversations having learned something. Um, and having and just feeling, I think the passion of Hannah rubs off on me. Um, so thank you, Hannah, for joining us here today. It's been my pleasure to have you. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, Thank you for giving up your time to talk about Mosaic and all things charity and uh, immigration. Thank you. Um, I don't think I can follow that. (laughs) You don't have to. I literally sat here like, oh, (laughs) No, no. Honestly, it's literally my pleasure. So thank you so much for being here. And I think that is the end of the episode. So anybody that is new here thank you and I hope you've enjoyed your first episode please if you can follow us on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts and please leave us a review on Apple and um, it really helps us to get recognised and noticed in the search bars and your positive reviews um, and comments um, also allow us to kind of rank on the Apple, Apple, IG, Apple podcasting charts we're very 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 far at the bottom because we're a new podcast and we don't have the numbers yet but one day i hope we will um and so if you can support us in that way please do follow us on twitter on instagram um and yeah stay tuned for the next episode which will be out next week monday thank you for listening have a wonderful day Bye. bye